One of the inspirations for this show was my son's love of storytelling through technology. Our guest on today's show, Diane Burley, has made a whole career out of technical storytelling. As a former journalist and multimedia executive, Diane has spent the past 14 plus years weaving stories into the everyday content of companies like Enstein, MarkLogic, LucidWorks, and now on her own as an independent consultant in order to help customers better understand complex tech. Stick around as we connect with Diane Burley. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Welcome to the show, Diane. And thanks so much, Grant. Great to chat with you again. Yeah, and thanks so much for joining me. And, and since you're a storytelling, my f- a storyteller, my first question is just simply, you know, give us the highlights. Tell us your story. Uh, well, I've been a storyteller my whole career. Uh, first for print, believe it or not, radio, uh, digital media, later for high-tech companies. I really enjoy it. I was a journalist by training. I started off in just doing general news. I drove a little news truck around for radio station at one point in my career. It was, you know, some fun stuff, but there was also some real human stuff that was really, really tough to sometimes stomach. And uh, I found myself getting anxious and a little burned out. So I found myself gravitating toward B2B and technology, writing about it, and uh, really just found my niche. And it was it was just wonderful. That was the beginning. And that was a long time ago. And then uh, in 94, I got this tremendous opportunity from a newspaper that I was working for. They were looking for somebody to start an interactive division. They didn't really know what it was about, but they tapped me to, to do so. So I moved into the role as VP of Interactive for, uh, it was an independent newspaper group that's now owned by Gannett. And we put two of the first daily papers on the web in 1995. That crossed me over from being a journalist who wrote about technology to now becoming a technologist who had to vet technology. And I carry that with me now when I work with these different technology companies, because I always goes back to those days when I didn't know what I didn't know. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm talking to our customers and, and your, your prospects out there. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? And what are they fearing? And so it's really easy for me to go back to those days. Take our listeners back a little bit to 1995. What was that experience like? Dive a little deeper there for me, because you know, a very different time in terms of technology, but yet still you know, this promise of the internet and this promise of connectivity that we still have today. Oh my gosh, it was it was a crazy time, especially when you were working in a newsroom where everybody was on a mainframe. In fact, they moved my team across the street. They didn't want us to be burdened with the status quo and, and the traditional paradigm. They said, go across the street, you'll be your own skunk works. And we did that. So I was looking for what would the business model be? We could put the papers online 
which, and we, we actually laughed about it because, you know, we, we wrapped a newspaper around a radio and we said, you know, we, you wouldn't put the newspaper on the radio like this, right? You would, you change the format and everything changes. And the newsroom wasn't happy about that. So we had to deal with politics. We had to deal with technology. We had to deal with business models. Having access to the uh, newspaper at the time, AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy were our three options. And, you know, everybody was like, well, which one are you going to choose? Which one should we put the papers on? And I didn't like the idea of using any one of those. You already had a very segmented audience. You know, each one of them had their own adopters. And you were going to further fragment um, if you chose any one of those three. It was fortuitous that, um, you know, Tim Berners-Lee came out with Mosaic and decided to do more of an open standard and go, go directly onto the web. So we bypassed that. Then the next big issue was, well, how will we, will we get on the web? Everybody was getting onto the web via AOL. You remember the dial-up? And so we decided that our business model would be to create a statewide ISP. So not only did I not know anything about choosing the database that I was going to use for the newspapers, but, you know, what were these things called routers and Bay East and broadband and fiber and all that sort of stuff. So I, I really dove deep into all of these different uh, areas from networking to storage to application building. It was, it was quite the crash course in technology. And I had no one. We, we had just such a small little team. The guy that I had working for me, who was my tech manager, had been a land guy. I mean, he never didn't know anything about wide area networks. I had somebody who was really, really good with databases. And she was so unbelievably moody, but she was willing to work for, you know, half nothing. That was the biggest problem that we had. And I think newspapers in general had was they had a pay uh, framework and people had to slot into it. So if the editor-in-chief, let's say, was making, you know, low six-figure, $110,000, $125,000, how are you going to bring in somebody with these skill sets and have them competing with what top, you know, management was earning? So that was a real problem. We were hiring people. So I was hiring people from the high-tech high school. I felt a little weird. Come on, little child, come to me. <laughs> and we'll give you an opportunity. And the two guys that worked for me, they were 16 and 17 when they joined me. They went on to Rensselaer and Carnegie Mellon and our PhDs and are amazing, amazing technicians out there now. So, But it was so weird. It was such a strange time because I didn't know the questions to ask. Certainly if I knew what I didn't know, I never would have had the nerve to say, sure, I can do that. Well, that kind of speaks to that uh, taking a leap in in a career. So it sounds like it's it's worked out pretty well. I, I would imagine, though, too, though, like you know, as a former journalist, in some ways, this figuring it out is somewhat of a natural skill for you, or a, or a learned skill in the sense of I'm going to dig in and do that. So I'm kind of curious as to like how did you approach really getting up to speed on the technical side? I'd ask a million questions, and I question vendors. I would go to trade shows. I remember going to a bulletin board show. That was when I learned about Mosaic because I was trying to figure out if we should actually, believe it or not, launch a bulletin board, which we did. We launched a bulletin board. It had, we had our IRC chat at the time. And I just met with people who were passionate about what they were doing. So they loved talking about it and they were willing to just teach me. 
and uh, I listened. I was really lucky, I think, in, in many ways. But you're right. I mean, as a journalist, you're, you're trained to ask questions and dig deeper and not accept when somebody says, oh, it's really good. Good is a meaningless word. You have to dig deeper. What does that mean? And when you say easy, what does that mean? So, you know, you would dig deeper and on and on and on. And, you know, you annoy some people and the people that really like it are the people you, I would choose to be my vendors or be on my team. Well, so then I'm curious. So you have this stint in, let's call it multimedia or online newspapers. When did you leave? And then how does that then lead into, okay, now you've got this technical skill and you've got this storytelling skill. How does that then lead you to, you know, what is effectively content marketing, product marketing, kind of being on the other side, uh, on the vendor side of the equation now? I'm leaving out a key, another milestone in this little uh, journey. We were one of the first four newspapers that were put on on the web, right? It was uh, Nando down in uh, North Carolina, Mercury's News, uh, San Jose Mercury News. And then we had the Asbury Park Press Home News and Tribune. We were hacked, which so this is 1996. We had been hacked, which we were the first newspaper probably to be hacked, which threw me into the whole security realm. And that's a whole fascinating story that I'll share with you at another time. But what happened was we ended up bringing in researchers from Bell Labs because this was brand new, people being hacked, you know, getting into the service, trying to find out. So they they loved it from a forensic standpoint. So they came in to take a look at it. They were able to solve the mystery. It was not really much of a mystery. We didn't have much uh, security. We had a person leave and we didn't change the passwords. It was just as simple as that. So, you know, that that was one of those eye-opening things. But what was really fascinating is that we tracked him back to his company that he had come from, and he was really a low-level burglar who was working with some really high-end criminals. And um, that led to a whole Interpol and, and stuff like that. So, you know, the journalist in me really loved that story. The businesswoman was not too thrilled that I we had done something stupid by not changing the password. So learning that the hard way uh, is something that sticks with you. Anyway, uh, Gannett did come in and and buy the paper. We were very successful at what we did. I had it profitable within a year and a half, which was unheard of with newspapers. We had a little web development company. We had the ISP, which was profitable. And of course, um, we had our own original content that we created as well as what the newspapers uh, wanted. Gannett wasn't as thrilled. I mean, they bought it and they insisted on buying it, but um, they shut us down. They shut down everything. In fact, we had one of the first e-commerce sites as well, Programmers Paradise, uh, was our client. And we used uh, Microsoft's IAS server. So we built a whole e-commerce end as well. New Jersey Devils, 200 schools, had to shut the whole thing down. It was the most horrifying, humiliating point in my career. And I happened to be pregnant with my second son. It was a, a very stressful time, very, you know, between the hormones and uh, just thrashing that was going on at work every day. It was horrible. I mean, when you're building something, it's so exhilarating. When you have to tear it apart, it was mind-boggling. Well, I'm curious there. I mean, actually, pause, because, I mean, was it they were just trying to classic big company move of trying to eliminate the competition? Exactly. I had gone to them. They had three other properties in New Jersey. Esbury Park Crest was the largest of the daily of the metros in New Jersey. And we had said we should unify. Remember the classifieds back then were all on a mainframe and nothing was normalized. So, you know, you could describe your two bedroom apartment as a two BR or somebody would say, spell it out, but you're, you're paying by the character. 
you know, with spaces, without, and, and search was impossible. So we actually started using SQL and we had to go out and do a whole new retrieval as to how we would intake the classified ads, which didn't win me any popularity contests in the classifieds department. Uh, since now we were having them take in the order instead of in text, we were now having them putting it into a columns and rows. We had called it homes in Jersey, autos in Jersey, and jobs in Jersey. We had gone to the Gannett papers and we had gone to a couple of the other independent publishers and said, why don't we band together and create a regional, a statewide network? Said they were interested and bought the two daily papers, bought the online and shut the whole thing down. I'm sure they would make a different uh, decision today since at the time we had $500 million in revenue coming from classifieds. That was the golden egg for newspapers back then. That's a long time ago. Yeah, the genie was out of the bottle on that. So you basically shut down and now you're thinking, okay, what's next? I was thinking, what's next? My son was born and I spent the next six, seven months looking for work and uh, ended up going to one of the guys who'd been the researcher from Bell Labs. He and a couple of folks from the labs were had some orphan technology they had been doing network topology mapping and another one had been doing, working with firewall a firewall analyzer and i was brought into the new ventures group at lucent to look at these technologies and see if we couldn't put a business plan around it so we brought in some outside uh, investor money and we spun out a little company of i think there was 10 or 12 of us that spun out uh, i headed up marketing it was a little ragtag team, most of whom were academics, so weren't used to the daily grind of starting a business. And that was interesting. I mean, but I was there with those guys for three years. One of the products was more pedestrian. It was a firewall analyzer. It would be great now from a SaaS standpoint. It was an easier price point. It was a it's more transactional sale. The other was a consultative sale. We actually mapped network topologies to find when we were leaking, when a company was leaking outside their IP. Basically what happens when you have that type of sale is you're finding problems. And you know, people liked the idea, but they also knew they wouldn't be able to easily remediate it. It was a difficult uh, sale. So I, I look for that when I'm taking on companies now, you know, how easy is it going to be to sell this product? Is it a nice to have or a need to have? It's a little bit better for you and for the company if it's in the need to have category. Especially uh, given that we're in the middle of this craziness that is COVID and potential recession, you almost double down on wanting to be in that need to have category for sure. I'm curious in there, you know, I, I think you hit on a couple of pretty key inflection points in your career. How have those lessons carried forward for you in terms of shaping the rest of your career? It's great to have a plan and then there's life that goes around. And you better be interrupt driven because everything changes. Uh, nothing stands still and, and stays the same. I did want to get back into publishing after the stint with uh, Lumetta, which was Lucent Technology spin out. After Lumetta, I decided to just form my own online pure play. And it was pure contemporary. It was all high-end contemporary design. And, and at that point, it was great because I got back into editorial and storytelling and, and really enjoyed it. Again, I didn't know what I didn't know. I had had a brush with uh, cancer at that point. I needed to work from home. So it was just one of those things that I decided that I would do. So here I was building yet another CMS 
And the business model was to bring in products from manufacturers and have and do it as a lead generation tool where we were literally allowing people to search, find, and and query the manufacturer. And the manufacturer was paying us to put the products in there. And of course, you have all the problems that you, people have with search even now today, where people are not searching the same way and uh, nothing's normalized. And uh, it got me into my next job, which was a text analytics company, where you would do automatic tagging of content and being able to find synonyms and uh, build metadata that way. There's been a thread to everything I do, maybe with the exception of the, the networking but company, which was... Uh, the network topology company, but maybe not too, because that was a type of search, right? We were searching, uh, but we were searching routers, <laughs> searching for routers. Even in, throughout this, there's another thread besides kind of searching content, if you will. And that is, it sounds like, you know, also a lot of entrepreneurial spirit here of either within a company, starting up a division or a group, or is that fair to say, et cetera, right? Has that always been present in your life? Yeah, I, I was a business brat. My dad owned his own business, and uh, I got into it. And as a young kid, he'd come home and he brought a he imported furniture from Europe, and he'd be making me look at the paper and look at the conversion rates and say, "Is this a good time to be buying Danish furniture? What's the crown doing?" So I'd have to look it up. But I think from a technology standpoint, there's a lot of cool technology. But if technology doesn't solve problems, then it's never going to be popular. And, and my thrust is never to look for technology for technology's sake, but to solve a business problem and, and look for the problem and then look to match the technology to the problem. And, and I think that that's why it tends to be more successful. From a storytelling standpoint, it helps resonate with your audience. I mean, they have the pain, they have the problem. We have to solve it. How can we help you get there? Describe a little bit more for our listeners, what does this look like in terms of day-to-day, in terms of skills required, in terms of, I don't know, philosophy or approach to really crafting good technical content? When I was living in New York without a safety net, you know, you'd be between jobs because magazines were always being bought, sold, closed, whatever. I took on a lot of documentation writing, and one of them was for um, AT&T, the Merlin system. And one of the things as a tech writer, as a doc writer, is you start with what is the level of experience of your audience? And if you had to have prior knowledge of the system, you know, you, you would write that. And if they did, then you knew that they understood the language. And I think doc writers really have a wonderful way of understanding the audience. When you're working for a newspaper or a radio station or whatever, you do the same thing. Who's your audience? What are your listeners interested in? If you're on a sports show, you're talking about sports. Uh, You're not talking about recipes. And if you are talking about recipes, then you're going to speak very differently than if you are speaking on a food network show. So it's understanding your audience's level of knowledge. When you're talking about enterprise technology and enterprise sales, there's so many different audience members. And I think one of the big mistakes that most companies make is they go, oh, this is technical. And the technical person is going to understand all of this. Well, I've worked in networking companies, cybersecurity companies, development companies, database companies. And I can tell you that the people, the top engineers in each of those places wouldn't have a clue about what the technology is 
at a, that another company is offering. And so you really need to bring it down to those basic levels. And you don't have to do it in a condescending way. You do it with metaphors. And we're all doing something that's relatively unique. So the idiosyncratic way that we address the problem is probably going to be different than another company's, even if you're in the same industry. I think that you have to just keep, like people always talk about the onion and removing the, the, the skin of the onion, is you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. You start with that high level aspirational. What's the problem that this person has and, and get them to pay attention because you're talking about their pain and then bringing them in. And then you're all the way down. Lucidworks was saying, we're no longer going to be on-prem. We're going to be only in the cloud. The question was, you've sold on-prem. Are they going to understand Kubernetes? Are they going to understand containers? What do we need to tell them? And so, you know, again, we came up with a whole plan of, of types of content that would address the technical market and the business market and so on. So that, that's pretty much how I do it. No, that's great, Diane. And, and then I imagine, too, you have this other side of your brain. Like we had J.P. Sherman on an episode earlier, and he specializes in search engine optimization. I imagine then, too, you that getting people to show up, I, I think you hit on at the, at the high level, is both easier than ever and harder than ever, I imagine, just from getting noticed on, you know, by Google, et cetera. It's not like you could just go buy ads on a radio and you more or less had a captive audience these days, right? Well, it's harder now because Google is monetizing so many of the searches on sites. So even if you win the phrase, which you normally win long tail, right? Um, which is the problem, by the way. I always say to people, don't worry if we can't win. Like Tesla doesn't care if it doesn't win car. It wants, you know, futuristic electric car. That's what it wants to win because that's when a person has the intent to buy. When a person is just looking at shoes or database, they're not ready to buy. They're just learning. They're just in the beginning of their educational journey. When they're saying, I want this, it has to be able to handle petabytes. And, you know, that query string is now getting long. That's the intent to buy. So the long tail if you win that, you're at the top and they are probably aren't selling and monetizing that page. But the educational pages are really hard to win now without payment. You could win the page, but you're 10 pieces down because they've got the accordion. You know, you might want this. and Do you want that? And all those other things. Yeah, Google's making it really hard. Social media is key. People come to webinars, but nobody pays attention to them. The next issue is how do we psychologically hook them? How do we emotionally grab them? And I think that's another part of B2B in general, but B2B technology specifically. The people that are buying technology, I don't care who you are and what you do in a, in a company. You can be the best programmer. You could be the best quant person, line of business. You are a person in your day life and, and when, you're, when you're not at work, right? And if you're going to go look for a car and you're going to buy a Volvo, you're going to do so because of certain psychological reasons. You want safety. If you are looking at a Tesla, you're looking at something that's futuristic. That personality that gravitates to those different psychological motivators is going to bring that to their day job. And our content has to say to them, this is going to get you a raise. And for the person who wants to be the hero, wants to get a raise, that's going to resonate with them. And for the person who's risk averse and just doesn't want to get fired, 
They're a couple years away from retirement. They want to keep their head down. They've got kids going to college. That's going to terrify them. They just want something that's going to work and not make them stick out. You've got to be able to understand that all of the consumer psychological motivators that Madison Avenue figured out to attract people on the consumer side, we have to bring some of that over to the B2B side and connect with people emotionally. I know that most people don't like to think that they buy things emotionally instead of logically, but we do. We get attracted to something emotionally and then we logically rationalize why this is important. That's when you find that uh, the same piece of content, we can just turn it around. We could say five things to help you succeed versus five reasons this will fail. The negative is going to have a higher traffic than the other. And both of them can be buyers or influencers or decision makers. Know which personality you're going to get when you go into a company, but you have to be able to deal with both of them. Yeah, fear sells for sure, right? Um, or at least makes people aware. So, so I, I mean, I guess what I'm hearing then is kind of some of the practical aspects of this is in many ways, it's the classic thing with anything in marketing is the psychology, the human emotion side of it, even in, you know, something as dry as enterprise software sales, or what seems dry as enterprise software sales, there's still very much this, how is this person showing up? What are they feeling? Where's their headspace at? Are they in a new and emerging industry, new and emerging company? Are they in an old, stodgy company? Like, why are they there? That's part of it. The other part of it is it must be authentic. When you said marketing, I immediately like, ugh, because I think a lot of people think marketing, it's all lies and so on. It shouldn't be. If we're going to storytell, I mean, Grant, you and I worked on pieces together. You would be you as um, chief marketing officer of a company, I can't write about why this is going to be integrated with your ERP systems easily. I have no authenticity when I say that. You could say that. And I would make sure that you were the person that was quoted or you were the person that was actually writing it. Because I think it's really important to be authentic, that people want to be able to trust that the information they're hearing is valid. That notion of authenticity goes across so many different layers. And, you know, at the end of the day, I often think this show is really about just helping people build better relationships by, in many ways, being authentic. Shifting gears and trying to bring some of these things together a little bit more. You know, I have this little saying on the show, you know, jobs and careers aren't all sunshine and rainbows. What's the best thing about being in content marketing, product marketing, you know, this content strategy role? And what's the most challenging? Well, the best part is that I'm always learning. My career has evolved. Every one of these technologies that I learn, you know, adds another five to 10 years of, of relevance to my career. So that's number one. It keeps me current. The hardest part is that every time I learn a new technology, I always feel like I'm scuba diving and waiting to take that breath, you know, because I'm underwater. I really don't know exactly what I don't know yet. I have to ask a million questions to get there. Sometimes the questions can annoy people. People sometimes are geared to think a question is a challenge versus a question is really, truly, I just want to know. So I I have learned in my career to walk to people and say, look, I have this annoying habit of asking a lot of questions and I'm going to ask it and I'm going to ask it from another angle and I'm going to ask it again. I hope you're not going to mind and I'm not challenging you and I'm just trying to learn because in order for me to be good at my job 
I really need to know almost as much as the person who's creating the product. I mean, not down to the coding, but I have to understand enough of it so I can understand the distinctions. Or I have to be able to say to you, what is the distinction about this product that makes it so unique? And let's talk more about that. And then when they start talking, I better understand them. So there are days when I just go, oh my gosh, I just want to come above water. And you know, some days I think, wouldn't it be nice to just you know, be marketing pizza or something, something that everybody understands and knows and just can sink their teeth into. And But, but no, I keep choosing the next greatest new technology. It's funny because people will say, well, can't you just hire freelancers to write content? And I'm like, no, no, we have to cultivate writers with, from within our company because we aren't writing about pizza. I could hire companies all day long if I was writing about tennis shoes or whatever. But when we're talking about something that fits, well, it's not even commodities so much as it's physical. People can see it, touch it, you know, interact with it. When we're talking about enterprise, you know, software, it's amorphous. So now it becomes, you know, real theater of the mind. Yeah, no, that's great. And in fact, you actually answered in at least partially my next question, which was, if you take a broad view of content, you know, there are all these, you know, third party content farms, if you will. There's even perhaps, you know, on the not too distant horizon, machine learning or AI that can start to produce, you know, let's call it human quality content. How does one enter this field these days? How does one stay ahead? How do you think about leveraging those things as tools to produce, you know, a better story? One of the things that I like to do when I'm when I'm creating a content is to make sure there's many voices. So it could be someone from within the company, an analyst, a customer, a partner. You know, the more voices you have, again, I think it adds to the authenticity. It's not me telling you how smart I am. It's me bringing all these different thought leaders into a single piece to help the reader decide whether or the listener, or maybe if they're watching a video, it helps them say, yeah, that this is authentic. So I don't know how well AI is going to be at assembling, perhaps at some point, but not today. So I don't, I don't think that's really an issue. But the other thing is uh, when you're talking about a specific product from within a company, only you know. It's like talking about your family. Only you know what's really going on within your family. It would be hit at a general level, but it wouldn't be specific enough. And that's one of the keys. That's one of the keys to content is you don't want a wandering generality. You want meaningful, specific. That's what you want. Something that's meaningful and specific to really, truly answer the person's needs. Most people are trying to answer a question like, how do I bring my Salesforce data and my Marketo data into one lens so that I can see across it? Or I've got this type of medical data and I need to be able to tie it to ICD-10 coding data. You know, whatever it is, it's something very specific. And that's what they're looking for. And what the answers that start to show up, that's where they're beginning their journey. And now they're learning more about, oh, I could do it this way or I could do it that way. And there you know, be 20 different ways and approaches. And each one of those, you get more specific and more specific. I have a lot of content. I don't have a lot of content. I have a big budget. I don't have any budget. I have people. I don't have any people. So they're looking for answers very specifically. And so you have a lot of different types of content you have to create for that. 
I love that phrase there, meaningful and specific. Uh, I think that rings so true to me. Diane, what's been the most surprising thing about your career today? And that thing that 18-year-old Diane be like, wow, I did that? Building three CMSs and a statewide repository of, or statewide ISP. I guess I did those things and I still wouldn't put on my resume that I could be a CIO or a CTO. And in essence, I was the CTO. There was nobody else. I was making all the determination. I just don't have the audacity to say that. And I I don't know, maybe that's a failing on my part, but I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of what I did and the team I assembled back then and, and the teams I've assembled since. That's been really cool. And thanks so much for sharing that. You know, it's interesting, right, Diane? Like I do what I call LinkedIn stalking anytime I have a guest on, and that's kind of the way I get my background. But then I usually update during the middle of as the show goes, you know, kind of behind the scenes here. But I had no clue on those aspects. So I thank you so much for sharing those with me. This show is called Developmentor. I would love to have you reflect for a moment on the impact a mentor or mentors have had on you in your career. You said that before that you were going to ask me that question. I've really struggled. I don't know that I had a traditional mentor. I have had some amazing technology friends that have really taught me a tremendous amount. People I could go to and find out, is this common knowledge? Say no. And then go back and I argue internally saying, people aren't going to know this. We need to change up how we're saying this. My hat's off to those amazing friendships that I've had with people that I've worked with that have taken the time to teach me. In college, I had a professor, Paul Briand, and he since passed away. He was up for a Pulitzer Prize for uh, the biography of uh, Amelia Earhart. He was a pain in the ass professor. He was one of those that would stand up there and he would um, critique your writing. It was a, a nonfiction class. We would all turn in our pieces and he would hold them up in front of the class and we would literally go through every word and he would just humiliate the person. It was tough. He was, came out of the uh, Air Force as well. So he, he approached things with a, without really worrying about your ego, without really worrying. I, I'm over, over, understating that. He just crucified people. But one of the things that he would say over and over again was, was this is bullshit. He'd say, this is bullshit. And we struggled with that. We didn't understand what he was talking about. It's this idea that you can't use words like big or easy because they're meaningless. They're meaningless words. You have to show how big something is. You have to paint that picture in someone's mind. And he is probably the person who had the biggest impact on my writing. And if I was going to get out of his class alive, I had to learn that. (laughs) You rattled off several mentors. I, I probably should update my question because I think it speaks more to maybe not the traditional what people think of mentors, but exactly this, which is some relationship, a friend, a mentor, a colleague or whatever that really helped you see things more clearly. So thank you so much for sharing that. Well, I would put you in that boat too, because when I joined LucidWorks, you were the guy I went to tell me, what is it I don't know about search yet? It's those types of relationships. And so thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Those are kind words. It was truly fun to work together. Last question for you, Diane. Where can our listeners best follow you, learn more from you? I don't know, social media, LinkedIn, et cetera. LinkedIn right now, I'm in the process of, of writing a lot more and 
get posting them onto my my LinkedIn page. I've got uh, pieces that I've been doing, and they're up there. So LinkedIn.com slash in slash Diane Boone. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll be sure, of course, to link up your profile. So Diane, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really great to have you on the show. This is fun. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. Two, if you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S, all one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.